I've always been interested in teachers, students, teaching and learning. Starting at the age of four till I was 34, I was a student and this experience has given me a great interest in researching, analyzing and understanding what it means to learn and to be taught. When I returned to India and as I completed my PhD in architectural history, I was invited to do all sorts of teaching experiments, whether it was conducting workshops and writing and preparing proposals or theses or collaborating to assess and redesign art, design, and architecture programs across India. After nearly 20 plus years of rethinking the curriculum, there seems to be a growing interest in developing intellectual projects in art, design, and architectural history and pedagogy that could be sustained at the undergraduate, postgraduate, and PhD levels. Good day. This is Annapurna Garamala, and I'm an architectural historian. And uh, I want to give you this audio essay as part of the ongoing research I've been doing in post-independence pedagogy in art, design, and architecture schools in India. And I thank you so much for listening to me. Looking over my experiences, several questions have emerged. And for this audio essay, I'll keep my focus on architecture programs, even as I sometimes refer to design and art school curricula. So I have three questions I want to put forward for us to think about. The first one is, how does the divide between practice and theory that is the base of all professional courses in art, design, and architecture structure the pedagogical experiences of the teacher and the student? How does it structure the conduct of professional life, both as practitioners outside of the academy and inside of the academy? Does the practice theory divide have a history that is specific to South Asia, specifically India? If there is or are such histories waiting to be researched and written, where would I begin? What would I include? That's my second question. The third question is, would engaging with these histories be helpful to the student architect in practicing professional life? as an architect, designer, or artist, or teacher? This is an important question for me, as I'm also a practicing designer, and a practicing teacher, and of course a practicing researcher. Just to recap, I'd like to guide us through some of the research I've been doing by focusing on three different kinds of architecture schools that were established at different moments in India's history. The first is the JJ School, which began as a Department of Architecture in 1913 in the Bombay School of Art and Industry. In 1952, a few years after independence, it became the JJ School of Architecture in the University of Bombay, which has now become the University of Mumbai. It moved from being a Beaux-Arts school of sculptural ornament and architecture detailing, as the school's website tells us, to being firmly modernist in the kind of education and architecture that it imparted, uh, especially under Claude Bately's tenure as its head. Uh, he was there from 1923 to 43. 
after independence, SEPT was uh, established with the first school being of architecture, and this was in 1962, and the Ahmedabad Educational Society was um, the, the sort of a founding organization. It began with B.V. Doshi, who was a graduate of J.J. School of Architecture as its head. Doshi had also trained and worked with Corbusier, especially on his Ahmedabad projects. And this connection is an important legacy in the space and practice of pedagogy at SEPT, which has, of course, evolved over the years to include other things. I also want to bring you to one more moment, um, which is already like a historical moment, which is the late 1980s and early 1990s, just around the time of liberalization of the Indian economy, when new architecture schools were founded, um, especially in smaller towns. Uh, I spoke to uh, colleagues who teach or were taught at some of these kinds of schools. The one I've chosen to talk about is the Malnad School of Engineering's Department of Architecture. The Bangalore-based architect teacher Smita Balasubramanya says that her teachers at the Malnad School of Engineering's Department of Architecture taught the course with the idea that India was on the cusp of a big transformation. This department too had connections to Bombay and Ahmedabad. Its founders were Shankar and Navnath Kanade, who trained in Bombay at JJ, and the faculty at Hassan had architects who trained at SEPT. So this is the kind of lineage of both practice and pedagogy, uh, practice of the profession, but also the practice of um, the profession of teaching in schools uh, can be connected across the landscape of the country. And of course, this always connects to the travels that architects have to New York or to Europe. And um, there's a kind of flow between Bombay, Ahmedabad, Europe, uh, America, and to all these um, cities like Bangalore and Hassan and other places. The architect and academic re and researcher Kaiwan Mehta also went to a school that was formed in the late 1980s and early 1990s, uh, which was um, KRVI, Kamla Raheja Vidyanidhi Institute in Bombay, uh, which was founded in 1992 in a different location, not South Bombay like JJ, not Central Bombay, but um, at the edge of Bombay and uh, of South Bombay, Central Bombay and North Bombay. And it was headed first by the architect Sen Kapadia, who trained at, uh, in Bombay at the JJ School and worked with Louis Kahn in the US. His education too began with the idea that, uh, when I say his education, I mean Kaiwan Mehta. His education too began with the idea that modern, that the modern had a postmodern. So in the late 1980s and 1990s, there was a modern and that the modern had now to be bracketed uh, uh, by the postmodern and that the logic of postmodernism must be made available and relevant to in the Indian architectural education. And I'm hoping to elaborate this one day when I publish this research. Now, given the time that I have left in this half-hour audio essay, I want to just um, examine what these three moments, the early 20th century, the mid-20th century, and the late-20th century, and continuing into the present, um, offer in the, in the form of modernist pedagogy. 
So one crucial element of pedagogy in many places uh, in India, almost everywhere, I think, at architecture schools, is the measured drawing. One of the most important aspects of all architectural education is that you go to a historical monument, a quaint village, a town, and an area in a city. So this will happen over the course of a five-year program and draw it to scale exactly. So a class goes, they do a section or they do the whole building, and then they might come together to make uh, an idea of a whole place. And then they might also use that in the studio to analyze what more could this village or this town do? How would you do transportation? How do you understand the caste and ethnic makeup? Where do women sit? Uh, what kind of finances are there? So it's, it's, it's not just a, 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 an experience of drawing, but it's using drawing to analyze and to do sociology of uh, a place, right? So the measured drawing seems to lead in three significant directions. One is the studio. So where you do pedagogy with life-like problems, and that's really important. I've taken this from uh, an architecture school's website, life-like problems. But somewhere, this idea of looking at these places and using the measure drawing to think about life-like problems does not always lead to life as it's lived in architecture schools or in architectural practices. Another way that the measured drawing really seems to um, impact or support the architectural pedagogy is to bring architectural history into the studio. So the process of analyzing stones and the scales of buildings and the streetscapes, this is all a way of looking at uh, the history, the historical artifacts of a place as a part of studio practice. In the process, because there isn't a lot of archival work involved, uh, there are, there is of course a lot of conversations with residents which can become ethnographic. Um, uh, there is a lot of discussions with um, people who might be um, powerful people in a settlement who make decisions about public life or community resources. But the idea of history and time is not so central to the way that the measured drawing enters the studio. So in the process, architecture becomes heritage but it doesn't really become history. The fourth thing that's very important is that in the process of analyzing um, villages and towns and areas and cities um, is that gradually, though it's not firmly stated, a conception begins to develop about non-credentialed practitioners as builders and credentialed practitioners as architects. So the recent Supreme Court decision and the Council of Architecture's response is respectful that many things in this country are not built by architects, but are designed and made by builders. Um, but the idea of who gets to claim and are the space of 
the architect is still very much about credentialing. And that, of course, ties to government projects and who gets to be impaneled as an architect. And finally, the measure drawing also seems to lead to a fifth direction, which is the conception of the vernacular that is uh, a village uh, well or a granary or a particular kind of uh, housing form uh, that's that would be positioned uh, that would be vernacular architecture also because these are built by people who are not credentialed practitioners are builders and not architects so that's conceived as the vernacular and it's conceived as the tradition whereas the modernist that is built by architects it becomes the contemporary so this is a very complex dynamic when you position something that is not built by an architect as tradition or as the vernacular and what is um, modernist and made or at least designed by an architect as the contemporary. I hope to work on this kind, these questions much further later on, but I just want to put this out for you. Another facet of modernist pedagogy is the formal narration of architectural history in a text. And this is very important. So what are the texts that were used in architecture schools? Um, almost from the beginning, I mean, a very important text was Bannister Fletcher's History of Architecture on the Comparative Method, which was first published in London in 1896 and revised, updated, and republished at regular intervals since then, including as recently as the Bloomsbury volume in 2019. In the, in the early editions, India appeared once in Fletcher's Tree of Architecture and it was associated with Buddhist architecture. But more in the recent volume, the 2019 one, India appears several times in each period right up to the present. And of course, I think, uh, different people have authored it and it's edited by a single editor. Another important text is Percy Brown's Indian Architecture, which was published in 1940. And the third important textual um, form of architectural history is Ananda Kumaraswamy's publication. This textual archive has grown out of, very importantly, the quality and the breadth of these publications. They are some of the first to synthesize a vast landscapes. Um, but also because uh, over time, new things came along but there were limited resources available to architecture schools. And also, there was a lack of serious publications on architectural history in India that was not archaeological in uh, orientation. So if you wanted to get the breadth of, like a, 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 for a course, you wanted to get a breadth of architecture, uh, a, a large landscape, you went to these, these three authors and their texts. The sociological experiences of caste, rank, or class and gender, the economic dimensions of patronage and construction, the complexities of the temple, the mosque, the court and bazaar, the politics of materials and labor, the theorization of space as historical experience, and the designed and built artifact as historical acts of imagination, were not part of the pedagogy of textualized architectural history. And that's pretty much 
true for these texts as well. I think they're changing, of course, but it's, it's a significant uh, lacuna. Now, what is the impact of the measured drawing and this very compact textual archive? One, historical architecture was a source of pleasure and delight in the beauty of buildings. And the idea was to look at these buildings, historical buildings, by learn and learn about styles and art appreciation. Looking at architecture was seen, is seen, was and is seen as context, as though the built form standing within, as though the built form stands within, but apart from the context, and is not context itself, that it is not the context. The Council of Architecture website recommends the following approach to the history of architecture. It tells us history of architecture and culture, architecture as evolving with specific cultural contexts, including aspects of politics, society, religion, climate, geography and geology, etc., through history both in the Western context as well as in the Indian subcontinent. Development of architectural form with reference to technology, style, character, examples from every historical style illustrating the same. So these are the, the recommendations for any teaching of architectural history. So one interesting and very important gap is that uh, the Indian subcontinent's only has to relate to the West. It doesn't have to relate to vast areas such as the cultures of the Indian Ocean, which share with India both climatic conditions, trade connections, but also population connections and material connections, or, or, or Africa, or many other things. Uh, recently, uh, Anuradha Ayer Siddiqui and Rachel Lee have just released a um, journal for the architecture beyond Europe, which talks about architectures of migration, which don't necessarily easily connect the West to the Indian subcontinent in a linear one-to-one -one sort of way. Um, another impact of both the measured drawing approach to teaching and learning as well as the compact textual archive is that um, architecture is taught and experienced as something that exists, but architectural history uh, is taught and experienced as something that exists between the lived experiences and the pre-university education of students and teachers. So you went on a trip, you have that interest in temples, or you might be very interested in forts, or you had lots of classes in your CBSE or ICSE curriculum, um, which gave you a general introduction to Jaisalmer or to Agra afford. And uh, uh, it also, architectural history lives between that kind of background, sort of the hobby, as well as the passion, as well as the, the education, pre-university education of students, and the measured drawing and the framework that Fletcher's comparative approach provides, as well as the reading interests, of course, of various teachers. Smita Balasubramanya says that the lack of slides, and this is really beautiful, said that a lack of slides or publications was sometimes replaced by her teachers uh, with an intensity of drawing, that a teacher could come to a chalkboard and just draw a whole historical building, or 
the imagination, the powers of the imaginations that the students brought to contemplating a single photograph of a major building. So when we talk about limited resources, it doesn't mean limited imagination. I'm just talking about how things worked. What were the, the dynamics and the, 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 the resources that were available? And until recently, a third way that this impact manifested itself is that until recently, architectural history in schools of architecture was not taught as a discipline in its own right, with a history of its formation, an intellectual project of its own, or projects of its own, or utilizing certain tools, languages, archives, and methodologies. Now... I'm moving towards the conclusion. What can architectural history in the studio or in a new set of texts contribute to reconfiguring practice and theory? I go back to the three questions I posed at the beginning. First, would engaging the history of architecture and specifically the history of architectural pedagogy be helpful to the student architect and in the practicing professional life of an architect, designer, or artist? Yes, I think. David Anstis of the Plymouth School of Architecture wrote in 1967 for a symposium on architectural history and the student architect that, quote, the real basis on which history should be studied is that of the acceptance of the fact that it is a mature and a maturing study. I think that's really important. In the process of our thinking and doing architectural history, reading and writing become part of practice and not just theory. Great observations in architecture, society, and history have been made by people who practice architecture and research the built environment. Bookshelves and blogs are full of their words. Even buildings are birthed by their ideas. The encounter with historical thing Thinking can and should happen anywhere, in fieldwork, in the studio, or in the library. A history of pedagogy also is a necessary genealogy that architects should have. A hum and I think it has the potential to humble modernism's claim on universality and modernity. Second question that I raised at the beginning. How does the divide between practice and theory structure the pedagogical experience of the teacher and the student? How does it structure the conduct of professional life? The theory and practice divide and how it structures the pedagogical experience of the teacher and the student can be thought about in several ways. For the moment, for the purpose of this audio essay, I want to focus on something that is perhaps unusual, which is on breath and posture. Imagine an artist in a karkhana painting an image on a manu for a manuscript, or a stone carver chipping away at a sculpture on a block of stone. One sits on the floor while he paints on a boti, a, a desk that's low, and the stone carver sits on his haunches, squats, really. Memory and tools both both memory and tools, are controlled by each of these people to produce the best work within a set of conventions. Each time convention changes, which happens incrementally, memory must be remade. At the work desk or site, the maker has to control his breath and his posture completely 
so that memory is fluidly embodied in the hand. The arm and the tool, uh, and uh, in the the hand, in the arm, and in the tool, and finally memory flows onto the page or the stone. The breath is long or short, but it is completely controlled and consciously controlled in the process of making. You can't use a squirrel brush if you're panting or taking very quick short breaths. Your memory of how to do an eye would be jagged instead of smooth. Lots of mistakes, of course, happen. Corrections are made, versions discarded, but embodied memory is critical to practice and control of breath modulates the pressure of touch, creating the smoothness and the length of the line or the depth of the sculptural relief. This is why makers of painting and sculptures come from lineages where they are taught at an early age to internalize the control of breath and the strength of the hand and the legs, as well as the stability of the triangular lotus posture and as the compactness of the, uh, of, of the, of, of the person of the squatting position, which allows you to control the chiseling as you work on a stone. Now, let's go into a more modernist pedagogy. Imagine an architect, artist or an architect doing a life or a measure drawing. Standing at the drawing board or in front of a monument or walking through a site, the whole process is all about looking at the object and looking back at the drawing. It is the continuity of the feedback loop that is central to managing the drawing that seeks to be realist in its imagination. The total body as a mediator of thought and making is present and working, but almost forgotten in the preeminence accorded to the truth that the eye grasps and the mind supervises. So it's no longer your legs, your breath. Uh, all these things are not conscious elements, but it's your eye and your mind. This has become even more true in the era of CAD, where the architect does not often think about the making of a whole building from inception to construction in the drawing process. Becoming aware of this, a student architect could begin to think about how tradition is made through modernist pedagogy and how this conception impacts the understanding of their modernity and the construction worker or the rural person's vernacularity. Why are architectural and indeed design, this could also prompt us to think and ask, why are architectural and indeed design and art school exams given in English? What happens then to the people who have all the capacities and skills to think conceptually and realize their ideas and materials, but are not articulate in English? In this context, I am these days thinking about the parallel schools of architecture and design that have emerged in India, from the barefoot school in Thelonia, Rajasthan to Somaya Kalavidya uh, in, um, in, in, in Kutch, and the Chanakya School of Embroidery in Bombay, as well as the National Academy of Construction in Hyderabad, and how they imagine the relationship between pedagogy, caste, class, and gender, and the designed object in making. Learning about histories, anthropologies, politics, and economies of historical acts of making, if done with the profound spirit of inquiry, has the great potential of creating reflexivity in pedagogy as practice, 
and theory and can position professional practice as a site for theorizing and practicing life. This is the utopic desire and premise of all great experiments in pedagogy, especially architecture, art, and design pedagogy over the last century and a half, and especially in India. I want to thank all of you for listening to this essay, which is, as I said earlier, part of a longer research project. And I'd like to thank Ishri Watson, Kurt Gambetta, Smita Bala Subramanya, and Kaiwan Mehta, as well as my colleagues in the field of architectural art education and in the practice of yoga for their conversations and intellectual engagement. I also want to thank my colleague Sindhura uh, D.M., D. Manjunath, who has been um, a discussant in many of the issues that come up here. Thank you so much.